Welcome to the Augusta Golf Show podcast. Now, here's John Patrick. Peter Kessler is a recognized golf historian, award-winning broadcaster, and we catch up with Peter following the big golf events. The players is such an event. Pleasure to welcome Peter Kessler back to the Augusta Golf Show. How are you, Peter? Well, you know, everybody says spring and the Masters herald the new year of golf. I say it's the Augusta Golf Show hmm. after the players and ramping you up to the Masters. So I'm thrilled to be with you. By the way, I've done the math. You can tell your accountant this is your 77th appearance on the show. This year? <laughs> no. No, we've been doing this a long time, my friend. I think I think I went back to 2011. I think we've been doing this for 12 years. Holy moly. So, well, you know, it goes by it goes by in a heartbeat in 77 Sunset Strip. It's hmm. a whole good thing. It's not a bad score to shoot if you're a recreational player. I'm in and we can still break 90 for a few years, so we're good. Okay. All right. Um can we believe Everything we're seeing out of Scotty Scheffler. Does this kid have longevity? Well, we're going to find out. But I tell you, right now, I'm as ex- I'm the most excited about the PGA Tour and the majors and the Players Championship and the state of golf than I've been in for a really long time. I mean, you know, you're almost old enough to remember when Jack and Arnie and Gary were the big three. And, you know, there really wasn't a big three after that. And what happened at that time was you had Gary and and Arnie and Jack, and they were picking off most of the majors, certainly from 58 to call it 75. And then there was this whole group of guys from Johnny Miller and Tom Weisskopf and Lee Trevino and Tom Watson. I mean, a stunning group and Seve and Faldo and later Rick Norman. And so you had this rotating group of super good players around Jack and Arnold in the 60s. And then as they lost relevance later, you had in the late 70s and in the 80s until Tiger joined the Tour in 96, a stunning amount of great players, some of whom I've already mentioned, and the Faldo-Norman Wars, of course. But then what happened is that Tiger, in my view, is the first, is the last great player who turned professional in 1996, the first great player who turned professional in 1996. So now Tiger is, you know, more towards picking an event that he can show up at, not feeling quite the celebrity golfer. So he's comfortable with where he's at. If his health is good, he'll continue to to play some pick, pick events. But right now, I think we have a big three, and I'm trying to answer your question this way. It's Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, with a group of players surrounding them that will challenge them and be able to pick off majors and important tournaments that those three don't catch. But when you've got three players who are all in their prime and McElroy having sorted out his pitching and putting issues and Scotty Scheffler having won, you know, at so many different kinds, two times at Phoenix, the great win last year at Augusta National, picking up Arnold Palmer last year, winning the match play, now you're playing at the players. The courses are also unrelated to one another. They don't favor a style of game. And Scotty's style is boring. That's always the best style. When Tiger won the 
won the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. I followed every hole but the five he played Saturday morning at 5 a.m. He basically led the field in driving. He hit most of the greens, and you know sometimes the birdie putts went in. But, you know, at, at that time, in every way, there was no course that Tiger couldn't handle with boringness, like Jack's boringness. Scotty Scheffler's super-duper boring, never aims at trouble, always picks a good spot. You would think by just playing the game that you would do all these things automatically, but a lot of players aren't able to summon all of their gifts at the times that they're highest above the ground on a net, above the ground on a wire with no net to catch them should they fall. Scotty Scheffler's not afraid of any of that stuff. He really gets excited and is into the challenge of the weekend. Rom really likes it. I think McElroy likes it a little bit less. He's going to have to, if he wins the Masters, Rory McElroy, of course, becomes the first grace player after Tiger Woods to turn pro. He's one Masters away from fulfilling that particular mission. He is right on the cusp. So I think we're in great shape because the only player the PGA Tour is missing is Cam Smith. And I don't think anybody, uh, well, and I don't think it can, because I think he's the one player that's of interest who's going to play in the Masters. I don't think there's any way at all that he can finish in the top 20 because he hasn't played in a competitive tournament since he won the Open Championship last year. And only Tiger, if he's feeling good, could skip a year. Tiger, Jack, Hogan, Jones. That's it. Nobody else can go a year without playing. So I think we're set up for a super-duper year of golf. I'm really excited about Scotty Scheffler. Last year, you asked me on my probably 73rd appearance, <laughs> you know, whether Scotty Scheffler's victory at the Masters was going to be remembered for 50 years. And I was thinking it may not be remembered for 15 minutes. Okay, things have changed. I like your comment better than my reaction to it. He is off in his prime. He's just he's such a good attitude. He's got such a good attitude for golf. He, 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 he doesn't combust. He doesn't implode. He doesn't do the Jordan Spieth on the high wire and make the wrong decision stuff. And, you know, it's it's this is a great time because of those three. And I'm really excited about Scotty Scheffler right now in his future and for golf this year. We're talking with Peter Kessler here on the Augusta Golf Show. Your comments made me think of this. I think of Hogan, Jack, Tiger. Okay, Scotty Scheffler. And the thing that runs through all all of them, is they don't beat themselves. And I think if you play this game and you don't beat yourself, you're going to be pretty successful. Well, also, too, Scotty Shepard's got something very interesting in common statistically with Jack and Tiger, which is um, they're the only ones who held both the Masters and a Players' Championship at the same time. When Tiger won the Slam, he also squeezed in the players before he closed it out with that, you know, afterwards with the Masters. And so he won the five most important tournaments in a row. Jack won the Players and the Masters in the same year. Scotty Scheffler did it. It basically holds both of those titles right this minute. So he's done it too. So he's, you know, he's, uh, he, he, the whole idea for these guys is to, to play conservative golf on Thursdays and Fridays and put yourself in position for the weekend. And you know, a lot of guys, if you're one of those best players, they're going to drop off on Saturday. When often the winner of the golf tournament, if it's a great player, may win the tournament with a front 930 on the Saturday that you don't even see and jump up the leaderboard. Arnold did that a million times in his career. It just barely makes the cut one year at the Open Championship when everybody was shooting in the 80s and it was the worst weather he ever played in. He had six birdies and seven holes. And he said to me, without that little burst, I wouldn't have won the tournament. He said, it's always a, a portion of the tournament 
where you end up closing it. And he said, sometimes it's not at the end. Sometimes it's on Saturday when nobody's watching you play. So the great players learn how to get to the weekend. They use excitement in, in the way that an actor channels it because you're happy to be there and you're free to let the performance side of you take over. You know, it's almost like Tiger and Jack and guys like that. Write the script beforehand and then turn it over to the performer side of themselves to go ahead and execute that which has been dreamed up prior. And so they look forward to that. And they know guys will drop off on Sunday exactly when they're their most excited. Like when Jack said in 86 to his son Jackie on the 15th hole, when they got over the second shot and he said to Jackie, how far would a three go here? Jackie thought he meant the three iron. Jack's talking about getting it up and down from 230 for an eagle three. I asked Jack later after he hit the four iron about that shot, and he said, well, it was pretty easy because he said I could. He said even if I was 10 feet right of the hole, that was a good place, or if I was 10 feet left of the hole, that was a good place, so I knew I could do that. When I told that to other great players, they said, well, maybe I could think that with a sandwich in my hand, but not a four iron within 10 feet left or right of the hole, and then he left himself the uphill putt. So he was like, how far would a three go as opposed to, oh, geez, what are we going to do here? Let's take a look at the leaderboard. The great ones don't even consider that there's competition. They're not aware of the audience. This is the thrill to be able to pull up the performance that you prepared for your whole life, like Picasso on the beach. The woman comes up to him and says, oh, Mr. Picasso, draw my picture. He takes out a sketch pad. It takes 20 seconds. He draws her face. She grabs it from him and says, thank you. He says, that'll be $10,000. She said, $10,000, it took you 20 seconds. He said, no, it took me my whole life. That's what Jack and Tiger and Hogan and Jones did. So that's a great story, by the way. Nicely done. Tell me, tell me your relationship with the players, the, the tournament. Have you always liked it? Have you, did you not like it in the beginning? You've grown to like, tell me where you are with this tournament. I, I, I thought it quickly grew into the most important tournament you could win after the Masters. And I think it's exactly that right now. When that course was first finished, I think in 81, I used to go down there with friends from New York and Washington, D.C., and starting in 82. And at that time, the course was different. The, the angles weren't as awkward as you stood over the ball. The, the targets didn't seem as small or as difficult or the angles to get to. It may have made the scores higher because the greens were like out of control, super duper fast. And if you, and if you hit one and you hit the ball too low and it didn't, you didn't have good spin on it, it could run and you'd have some really crazy chips. But it was a fun golf course when it first opened. And when Jerry Pate first went, it was a fun golf course. And uh, over the years, they made it more difficult in response to the equipment that began to no longer fit the field of play. So the the angles are more awkward. And so for a recreational golfer, if you're not a 75 shooter, you probably won't break 90 if you go there. It's, it's, it's that difficult and it's that unfun but the tournament has established itself you know that 17th hole like it or or not like it it's one of the big moments in golf i mean it's just a short little shot the green is humongous if you go for the middle of it and that's where jack would go and that's where tiger goes even remember the one the better than most but hit the ball to the back third of the green he wouldn't take it he wasn't anywhere near that front pit because that's not where you go 
Some holes, as Jones told all the Masters champion one year, are not all birdie holes. Some of them are not all birdie holes. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, that that these players have demonstrated um, a, an ability to be able to overcome the challenges of the Players' Championship and that usually a wonderful player wins. But because the course is so awkward, you get a Craig Perks sometimes. But you know what? That's how golf works because sometimes a guy like Craig Perks that nobody ever heard of will shoot the best four rounds of his life and they'll actually be good enough to win. And that's how a guy comes out of the field. He play, And sometimes a lot of these guys play the four best rounds of their life who you've never heard of like Craig Perks, but it's not good enough to win. But sometimes it is because golf is unpredictable in that sense. And so the Players' Championship has stood up to the test. The 18th hole may be the hardest. It's such a hard hole. It's such a hard – even when I was a good player, I used to think, you know, what are you going to do to make a sure five here? So <laughs> it's uh, – the 14 and 15 are really, really tough holes. 16 is is going to be a better hole with the with the ball being rolled back a little bit um, in terms of having a longer second shot in there. It won't affect iron play at all. We just talked about the driver with the rollback of the ball, and it's exactly right. And so I'm excited for its future. It doesn't have additional land it can acquire like Augusta does. Soon they're going to buy your house. And so I, uh, I'm happy with the Players' Championship. It is what it is. It's the, it's the most important golf tournament that you can win after the four majors. You mentioned the golf ball. I got to know your reaction to, to that news from earlier this week. What, what are your feelings about that? I'm absolutely thrilled. Phil Mickelson, the only statistic anybody needs to trot out is Phil Mickelson in his 50s is 60 yards longer off the tee than he was at 29. It ain't because he's fat and figured out a secret to play that way. So we know that starting in 93, that when the big-headed drivers came into vogue with the Big Bertha, and we know that that by 2000, the ball had changed for the first time. The golf ball was wound— from 1900 till 2000, which is why scores can be compared throughout the prior century until Tiger played a hard ball for the first time at the U.S. Open in 2000. Once the ball was no longer wound and became hard, and with drivers that had more of a trampoline effect as they relaxed the rules for manufacturers, the equipment became out of control. And so the ball every year is longer than it was before going back to 2000 as they've improved that hard ball. That's why I used to be able to compare Jones's record to Nicholas's record and Tiger's record to Nicholas's record in the 90s. They were playing the same golf ball. It just happened to be the Jack and Tiger hit it relatively longer than everybody else as opposed to absolutely longer and driving it close to the greens on par fours, which is what's happening now on a lot of these golf courses on tour. So, they're going to, they're, all they have to do is go back to a previous mold that's 20 yards shorter. There are no R&D course costs. There is no manufacturing. That is all complete nonsense. They, they may not have to go back to the 2000 ball that they use, the Pro V1, but maybe it's a 2005 ball. But the molds are still there. Everything still exists. The mold for 20 yards shorter exists. There's nothing to look into. The manufacturers don't like the idea because they think that recreational golfers want to play the ball that the pro plays. Guess what? You'll still be able to buy it in the pro shop. So it's great at the highest levels of the game. They're going to hit a club or a club and a half longer in. Fred Ridley in a couple of years won't have to use that extra 25 yards because the, te- the ball is going to go 25 yards shorter. 
He's going to move the sucker up, and they're going to have to the long shots in the number 13. So the rollback is brilliant. It costs no money. It affects no recreational player. It makes it insane for golf courses who don't have land to expand the golf courses. It'll make courses more playable because at the U.S. Open, like at Wingfoot, they won't. Everybody won't have 130 yards in every anymore. So they don't have to do things to make it unfair or to not reward a good shot. It's in the best interest of the game at the highest level. Recreational players want to buy the ball they can, and that's the end of the story. It's an absolutely brilliant move, long overdue, and I'm sorry they're going to take so long to phase it in, but I'll just put that under the heading of it's a process. We're talking with Peter Kessler here on the Augusta Golf Show. Early indications are that the tour players aren't really thrilled with this. Do you think come 2026 there won't be a choice? This will be the way they're playing golf? It's a done deal. They wouldn't have announced this if this had the PGA Tour is 100 percent going to do it. The four majors are going to do it. Uh, they'll do it on the uh, you know the, the feeder tours. If you I mean you know if you're going to try to qualify for a serious event where previously you haven't been playing the uh, the, the, the world back ball, guess what? You can practice with it. Nobody's at a disadvantage. It's just going to go a little bit shorter. When players go and play golf courses where there's elevation changes, you immediately make the 20-yard calculation for up and down in your head. So all they're going to do is just make the same. It's going to take one second to make the conversion. And the, the players are actually going to end up liking it because the golf courses are going to be more fun for them to play. The longer hitters will still be the longest hitters relatively to the other players as opposed to absolutely where the golf course isn't getting to play the way that it was intended to make you actually have to hit a five iron for a second shot. That's what's gone from the game. The awkward angle from a mid iron is no longer a part of the game. It was one of the best parts because recreational players couldn't hit that shot. But if you didn't have that shot, you wouldn't have Arnold. You wouldn't have Seve. You wouldn't have Tiger. You wouldn't have Phil. The awkward five iron over the wrong bunker with the green facing away from you. That was stripped away from the game. With the ball being rolled back, we're going to see the five iron instead of the eight iron. I'm delighted. Before I let you go, did you um, have you seen Full Swing on Netflix? I uh, I have not seen Full Swing on Netflix. I don't watch television uh, ever uh, unless it's a golf tournament that's a, uh, that's important. And I know that we're going to chat about it. It'd be nice to be relatively informed, but uh, I keep up with everything. But uh, no, I, I haven't. I, I I let very little in unless it's like a documentary on Da Vinci, who I knew fairly well. And by the way, he made the worst vegetable. He was a vegan, made the worst vegetable lasagna. I remember being in his house once with Michelangelo, and uh-huh. Michelangelo used to spit Da Vinci's lasagna into the napkins when Da Vinci was doing something in the notebook, and we'd both giggle behind his back. So you, you, you call him Larry and Mike, don't you? And. No, Mikey and Mikey and Leo. Mikey and Leo. But, okay, yeah. you, you brought up television. Best, and I, okay, you don't watch it anymore. But when you did watch television, best television series, in your opinion, ever was what? Uh, Golf Talk Live on the Golf Channel, uh, written, hosted, and performed by Peter Kessler 1,300 oh, times with 3,000 just... different guests. That's why I didn't want to become an actor on Broadway because, and I could have done that, I didn't want to do the same show every night. And I eventually found one job at the Golf Channel, which is one of my really fun jobs. 
where every single night was completely different. So I had to write a new show every single day for every single guest. I tried never to repeat a question. And so, yes, that was the best series on golf. And then I would put those shows, Wonderful World of Golf, right behind that um, and because that was also brilliant. But, no, the best thing that's ever been done on golf was my 1,300 live shows oh, on the I, Golf Channel. You, I'm supposed to listen to the answer. You're supposed to listen to the question. I didn't, I, I didn't mean golf. Just overall, best television series. Oh, well, MASH. Oh, means- well, I thought this was... I, Oh, I thought this was the Augusta Golf Show. I'm so confused. Yeah, keep going. I, uh, I really okay. Uh, I like Masterpiece Theater. I liked anything hosted by Bob Hope. You know, who uh, was just fantastic in impromptu in live. Um, so there's very few people that I think were great. And I never had any sort of TV idols. And that when I started, I thought, oh, I should do something like that. I just, you know, did a version of me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the last things that I watched on TV would have been things like Masterpiece Theater, the Ken Burns documentaries. Hmm. I can't believe I didn't get to voice those. I'm so much better than the guy they used. Peter Peter Coyote. Peter Coyote, but he lost his pipes. I have my pipes. I yeah. still have a thousand notes. He's got thirty, and he sounds hoarse all the time. But the Ken Burns stuff, there, it, there, he's done so many of them. He's been doing them for almost fifty years. The guy's a genius. The things he did, the thing he did on Benjamin Franklin was absolutely wonderful. And uh, you know, Ben Franklin, one of the great polymaths of all time, being brilliant in a number of different unrelated areas, as opposed to genius in your area. There's a distinction between the two. And, uh, you know, Ben Franklin's the one who said, you just need your share of the money. You don't need more than you need. I mean, the man, you know, did more first than anybody else. And, of course, I had read his uh, biography a long time ago by Walter Isaacson, who also wrote the great Da Vinci biography. So those are the things, those are the things, you know, that get catch me is when somebody's a genius, doesn't get distracted by drugs, doesn't get distracted by doing other dopey stuff and really bangs out the highest quality creatively that they can. So that's the stuff that I really enjoy. We've come to the end of Peter's 77th appearance on the program. I always appreciate you saying yes, Peter. Thank you for doing this. I look forward to number 78. I'm looking forward to it. It's coming up so soon. It's like my oldest friend's birthday is on the the 20th of this month. He's going to be 78. So that'll be my 78th appearance. It all ties in, John.